The Whole Health Cure with Dr. Sharon Berquist, the podcast that brings you inspiration and skills for living a healthy and fulfilled life. Hello, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Whole Health Cure podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sharon Berquist. On this podcast, we explore the science behind true health and living to your fullest physical, emotional, and spiritual potential. Today, I'm joined by Sean Lewis, the Lead Veteran Outreach Coordinator for the Emory Healthcare Veterans Program, and we're going to be talking about healing invisible wounds related to past military experience. And many of the ways that our veterans can overcome trauma apply to other of the life's most challenging situations that uh, that some other people may be facing. Um, a little background about Sean. He's a 17-year Army veteran with three years active duty and 14 and counting in the Army Reserve, including two overseas tours. Since 2014, he's worked in veteran services for education, career development, and health care. Thank you, Sean, for your service, for all that you do, as well as for joining us on this podcast. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I want to first talk a little about what it is about the military experience that creates so much trauma. You know, people like myself who have never had that type of experience of being on the battlefield. You know, we can watch Hollywood movies, but that's never quite the same of what, you know, what the experience is like and and why there's such a high prevalence of emotional trauma, anxiety, depression, you know, one out of three people who return from the battlefield has some type of PTSD, if I'm correct. Can you kind of paint the picture and, and take us into what it's really like? Yeah, sure. Uh, I'll talk about my most recent deployment, which was uh, to Iraq in 07 and 08. And I'm an Army engineer, uh, and our job was to find and clear IEDs, uh, improvised explosive devices uh, left on main supply routes, on dirt roads, in villages, basically anywhere that they can find weak targets. So uh, we would drive up and down these roads with vehicles searching for finding and clearing these IEDs. Um, there are two ways to clear an IED. The uh, preferred method is to identify it at a distance, set up a secure perimeter or cordon, and then to uh, identify the type of munition and safely detonate it in place. Uh, the other method, the less preferred method, is you don't find the IED, it finds you. Uh, <laughs> uh, we were very fortunate at this time in 2007, 2008, if you'll remember, was the height of the surge. Uh, we had a lot of equipment that the people who went in before us didn't have, a lot of heavily armored vehicles uh, with thick armor plating, V-shaped holes to disperse the blast. We were very well protected. So uh, we were, it was a 13-month tour. Of that, 10 months were on the ground conducting operations. And in that time, we cleared over 300 IEDs. Uh, most of those were IEDs we found. There were a good number that found us. Um, we had a lot of concussions, uh, a couple broken bones. One person had a punctured lung, but no one lost their life in combat. No one had a uh, drastically life-altering injury in combat, like an amputation or anything. We were very, very fortunate in that regard. Um, we only lost one soldier in theater, and that was a soldier who, within three months of our return date, took his own life with his own rifle. Um, and as to what causes the, the 
the difficulty in reintegrating a society, I can only speak to my experience, but a lot of the things that you're trained to do to keep you alive in combat and keep you going through a, a year plus deployment in a combat, uh, combat zone, they're just not compatible with everyday life and, and peacetime. Uh, when I was in Iraq, you're trained to constantly notice everything. Uh, any thing that's askew, any new piece of trash, any rock that looks like it's propped a certain way, any bag left unattended, any vehicle that's in front of an entrance or any gathering near an entrance uh, is a is a indicator of a possible attack, a possible threat. And you're constantly, constantly surveying your perimeter, surveying everything around you, looking for anything that's askew, anything that could be off, anything that could be a hint for an ID, for uh, an attacker, for a person, a suicide bomber, you're, uh, you're in this constant state of hypervigilance. And that's what you're trained to do. That's what's ingrained in you, and that's what keeps you alive. Uh, that's what allows us to be successful. But when you come back home to a peacetime environment, when you're surrounded by family and friends and loved ones, and your mind is still in this mode, this, you know, that's no longer hyper hypervigilance, it's anxiety, it's constant stress, and it's basically, it's, it's hard to turn your mind off. Uh, when I was in Iraq, and if we were going up and down roads, we wouldn't let any vehicles even come close to our convoy. Um, any vehicle comes close to you, you know, you, you fire a 50 caliber round through the engine block to stop the vehicle. Uh, because we had a threat of vehicle-borne IEDs were a, a, a strong tactic used then. To come for that environment, back to Atlanta airport, you get off the plane and that drive up 85. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was that, that was hard. That was really hard to make that shift. Um, also, there's this mentality in the military of uh, suck it up and drive on. That's something you'll hear a lot. People say, you know, whatever. There's this the idea that whatever you're going through, just push, keep on pushing through, and you'll make it through. Uh, there's a common phrase you'll see it on t-shirts and around military bases but it says if when you're going through hell keep going and that's and in a combat zone that that gets you through that gets you through a mission where you're, you're seeing horrible things where you're seeing death around you you're seeing things that you wouldn't wish on anyone but you've just got to sort of just keep your nose down and keep on pushing through and it works in combat it works in the military but when you're back home over over a period of time, just just having that mentality of just not stopping and pushing through, despite what's what's affecting you and affecting your family, it tears you apart. Um, the average veteran that we see coming in for help has been out of the service for ten years. It took that long for them to to, to stop and really realize that I need to do something about this. Uh, that 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 drive on mentality is great, but when you're home and you're in a safe environment, you really need to stop and fix things and take care of things and not just let them get worse. So um, I think those are two things that really contribute uh, to the problem. Yeah, and those are two really, really important points. And I think it's just so important to really envision and imagine that what works really well to help you survive in that combat environment actually takes away from your survival in a peacetime environment. Mm -hmm. In the process of training to have that level of vigilance, I mean, you start off in a safe environment mm -hmm. here in the U.S. You have to train to get hypervigilant. Mm -hmm. you know, how does that training process happen? Oh, that starts at, at basic training. Uh, 
from the very first time the drill sergeants come on the bus and, and uh, you're you're never even though you rationally know that you are safe that nothing's going to physically harm you 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 you're never in a safe zone you're never in a safe space uh, complacency is beaten out of you uh, sometimes quite literally uh, you, you're driven to always be uh, aware and alert of your surroundings. Uh, a lot of a lot of people think about the military in this very strict attention to detail, where everything has to be just right. And there's a reason because they're used to being. Uh, if it's not, then you're in a lot of trouble. So I, I think that sort of mentality is is, is driven into you from the very beginning. Is is part of the, uh, the preparedness. Know, because, yeah. Exactly, exactly, and that's that's the reason that a lot uh, we often talk about PTSD with people who have deployed and who've gone to combat, but. A lot of the veterans who suffer from PTSD have never deployed. Uh, actually, regarding uh, veteran suicide, the the group, the subsect of veterans who are most likely to commit suicide are those who never finished their training. Either they were kicked out for disciplinary reasons, medical reasons, uh, but they never finished. Those are the most likely to take their own lives, statistically speaking. Isn't that interesting? It really so it's is. not even necessarily being overseas mm-hmm. or the tour of duty, but the whole process of just that hypervigilance. Mm-hmm. And and I imagine people going into it, you know, all human beings are different. I think in that whole training process, you know, some people may be bringing into that some past experience. Oh, definitely. And probably their ability to carry out that training is mm. heavily influenced on their, their childhood, prior experiences, et cetera, some, a little bit of genetics, a whole lot of mm-hmm. things. And that training process, so how long do you need to train until you feel that you're adequately prepared to be in a combat zone? Um, it could be as little as 13 weeks uh, for a soldier who's going through uh, basic combat training and going to a unit that's mobilizing. Uh, 13 weeks of training, then they can get to a unit that's going to be mobilized in a month. So, you know, w- within four months, you could be in a combat zone realistically. And uh, that's not a lot of time. It really isn't. And, you know, what's so striking is that in 13 or so weeks, a person can go from not being hypervigilant to mm-hmm. having that level of just constant vigilance, yet you mentioned some people 10 years out from returning from the battlefield can't undo the hypervigilance back to everyday life. So it's amazing how quickly you can turn into a hypervigilant person and how hard it is to undo. Mm -hmm. Why is it harder to undo that training relative to going through that training? I think there's a lot of resistance to seeking help. Uh, the process of, of training to become uh, a soldier, and I say soldier because I'm in the Army, but soldier, airman, sure. marine, uh, or sailor, the, the, the process of becoming a service member, uh, you know, it's not something you do alone. It's, it, it is a very well thought out and intentional process carried out by professionals. Uh, when you come back, you don't have the same kind of, most people don't seek help for the same kind of process to reintegrate. Uh, a lot of the veterans we see, uh, they tell me that they come, they, they finally sought help after a failed suicide attempt or after uh, they finally got the ultimatum from their spouse, get help or get out. Or one of the veterans who recently completed the program told me that she only sought help after her daughter just broke down in tears and pleaded with her 
and she realized how it was affecting those around her. Uh, I think a lot of people don't want to get help because they see it as a weakness to ask for help. There's a lot of uh, stigma attached to seeking mental help. Uh, a lot of people don't realize how it's affecting those around them until they have that kind of moment with, with, with their family members, uh, with their children, with their spouses, with their friends. Um, so it's, it's, it's hard to encourage people to get the help they need. And, and the, using the term help is really interesting because when it's going from civilian life to combat, it's called mm. training. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you're returning and trying to get reacclimated, it's, it's viewed as help. And it's really an interesting way that we view those transitions, right? Because if we had a similar you know, training program for everyone who returns from combat, just as the training program, something that was very structured and mm -hmm. intentional, it would be very interesting to see if that reduced the rates of anxiety and PTSD, like just built in, not as a go seek help, but as a, this is how we prepare you. And mm -hmm. this is what we do when you return. Um, so it's really just interesting. I mean, to your point, I mean, there's a stigma because we don't view them as equal. Mm -hmm. We view one as preparedness and the other as go figure it out. <laughs> mm -hmm. No, that's a really good point. I mean, there, there's training for war. There needs to be training to reintegrate to peacetime. And, yeah. it, you know, I, I call it help just out of habit, but you're right. It is just like the training for war is, is, is very intentional, very regimented. It, it is training. It's you know, training how to get your life back. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's not intuitive. Mm -mm. There, there's nothing intuitive about it. And, and there's quite a science to it. Can you speak a little bit about the the program itself um, mm -hmm. and and why the elements of the program are there? You know, it's a very multidisciplinary program with many different components. So when somebody comes to Healing Invisible Wounds at Emory, what is the process that y'all go through and, and how do they kind of get to the other side? Right, right. And to do that, I'll, I'll sort of start at the beginning and tell you about the, the program. The, the, we're part of the Warrior Care Network, which is a network of four academic medical centers uh, that work collaboratively. Uh, there's us, Emory Healthcare. Uh, there's also the uh, Mass General in conjunction with Harvard Medical in Boston and Rush University uh, Healthcare System in Chicago and UCLA in Los Angeles. Uh, we all have very similar programs or each of us have certain specialties and th certain things we do differently, uh, but we all work together for best practices and to share information and to share research in order to really help the improve the treatment of PTSD across the board. Um, so here at Emory, we have a collaborative approach. We have two methods for treatment. Um, our training. I'll start calling it training. <laughs> we, we have a standard outpatient uh, method where a veteran can come in for weekly or biweekly or monthly visits uh, with our doctors. And then we have the intensive outpatient program, which is a two-week program where they come in. Uh, we put them up at a hotel across the street from us. And for two weeks, Monday through Friday, from morning till night, they'll receive a battery of care from doctors, psychologists, psychiatrists, fellow veterans, uh, other experts. And it's in, in that two-week time frame, they'll receive more care than you would in an entire year. Actually, you receive more hours of session than you would in almost two, almost two years of a standard outpatient program crammed into two weeks. Uh, we like that. We get much better results with that. And the reason is we have over a 92% completion rate 
with the intensive outpatient program. With the outpatient program, uh, and not just our outpatient program, but outpatient programs for PTSD across the board, the dropout rate is over 50%. And it kind of makes sense. You know, when you're coming in and you're ripping the scab off these old wounds and just taking these, these hurtful things out and laying them out there for an hour session with your doctor, and you've got to pack it back in and then go back to normal life and, and pretend everything's okay, that's hard. That's yes. really hard to do week in, week, in, week out. Whereas the two-week program, you can come into a very safe, controlled environment where you're supported by fellow veterans, supported by our staff who all work with veterans solely, Many, some of whom are veterans themselves, some of whom are the spouses of veterans, people who understand what you're going through. For two weeks, you can just focus on you, on your hurt, and on your needs, and, and train yourself to be better and to live better. Um, so... The initial contact would be with one of our patient care coordinators. Uh, well, let me back up a little bit. The initial contact is, is that's really kind of the crux, is trying to get the word out and to let veterans know we exist. Uh, we're one of the probably the best-kept secrets in the veteran realm. It's a completely free program to help veterans who are battling with PTSD, traumatic brain injury, military sexual trauma, anxiety, depression, any of the invisible wounds of service. Uh, so... My team, the outreach team, we, we go to military bases, we go to VA hospitals and clinics, we go to other veteran service programs, uh, we go to events, you know, any event we can where there's a veteran presence to try to spread the word about the program. Uh, and once a veteran signs up for the program, they can sign up either online uh, at emoryhealthcare.org slash veterans, or they can call our uh, 800 number, which I'll give at the end of this, I presume. <laughs> yes, please uh, They can do. call the 800 number, and they'll speak to one of our patient care coordinators who will do a quick initial assessment to make sure they, that this is the right program for them, that they meet, uh, that we can actually help them. Then they'll set up an, a, a comprehensive assessment with one of our doctors. Uh, this is a, a, a pretty long assessment. It can be done in person if they're local, but most of the time it's done over the phone. And then we use that to, that information to tailor a treatment program for the veteran. Every Monday, we have a uh, case conference, which is a multidisciplinary team, including specialists in psychiatry, psychology, neurology, sleep, rehabilitative medicine, wellness, uh, and case managers and social workers. We meet to review the evaluation results and determine individualized treatment plans for each veteran coming through the program. Then, based off that, we work with the veteran to get uh, their, their health records and get them a date they can come to our program. And then each veteran works with a social worker to get their, uh, to find a time in their schedule they can take two weeks off because for some people that is challenging. Uh, and then from there we book the tickets, book the hotel room, and the veteran just has to show up. There's no, no out-of-pocket cost. Uh, we work with the VA. So if they have a VA care team, we will work with them and communicate with them. If they do not want to use the VA, a lot of, a lot of veterans we see have a uh, less than ideal relationship with the VA and don't want to use the VA facilities. And, you know, we don't, we don't, we don't have to work with the VA. Uh, they don't have to have a prior diagnosis of PTSD. Our doctors can screen and diagnose them. Um, if they have insurance, if they don't have insurance, it doesn't matter. Um, also, we don't really care about discharge status, which is important. So we can help a lot of veterans that the VA can't. And the, and the reason that's important is a lot of the veterans we see with a dishonorable discharge or less than honorable discharge, a lot of times it's because of actions that were brought on by the PTSD. So a veteran who uh, 
turned to drugs to deal with their PTSD and was uh, discharged from the military because of that. Or a veteran, we had a veteran who was uh, sexually assaulted and went AWOL and received a, a disarmable discharge because he just wouldn't respond or show up and wouldn't go back, which is completely understandable by context. But he couldn't receive VA services because of his discharge. We were able to help him. Well, what a wonderful program. That's um, inc- incredible how many lives you have touched and how many you'll continue to touch. In the program, you know, when I'm, the key elements, what I'm, one of the things I think is most striking is, you know, when you people go through the whole military training, like you said, when you go to hell, you just keep going. Mm-hmm. There's definitely um, kind of this isolationist individual concept mm-hmm. in there that you keep going. Mm-hmm. And in don't ask for help is mm-hmm. part of that. And you know, one of the probably biggest traits that's you know characteristics of this program is that people are working as a group, and it's taking away that isolation mm-hmm. in in realizing that a they're not the only person going through what they're going through, and being with people who actually understand. I mean, I think that's such an important part of this because I'm sure when they go back, even their loved ones don't quite understand. I mean, they understand, but not at the same level. Right. What yeah. it must have been like mm-hmm. in that whole mindset shift that has to happen going, you know, in and out of a combat zone. Um, and so the two-week program, the success of it, of just putting people in an environment with other people, going through what they're going through, and letting them work through it as opposed to, like you said, reintegrating in everyday life and going in and out and still doing a lot of that work of healing on your own. And, you know, I'm mm-hmm. sure there's a big difference. One of the unique features of this program that I find so fascinating is that it's I mean, the pioneered virtual reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's such an interesting concept because, you know, on one level, you know, intuitively you wonder if you expose someone to the same traumatic experience or a similar environment, you know, why does it help instead of make worse the PTSD? Like, mm-hmm. you know, what is it about virtual reality and, and why virtual reality? Well, virtual reality is really just a tool to help us with the, uh, the trauma-focused therapy. Uh, a lot of times we use imaginative therapy where they close their eyes and, and talk through the index trauma, the trauma that, that caused their PTSD in their minds and walk through it over and over again, and uh, we expose themselves to that over and over again. Uh, Sometimes when people have difficulty with that, the uh, virtual reality tool can really help put them back there. Uh, Our director, Dr. Barbara Rothbaum, is widely recognized as one of the top PTSD experts in the country. Uh, And people think of virtual reality as a new cutting-edge technology. She's been working with it for 30 years. and, and I, I've gone through the virtual reality simulations, and it's, it's pretty in, – in the images are, are one thing. You, know, you, you expect that. You, put on the, you go into a dark room. You put on the helmet. Uh, you see the images around you. You turn your head, and you can see everything around you like you're there. But for me, what really brought me back was the sound. Uh, the, 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 there's really distinct sound of a Humvee going, you know, the, the ping of the uh, the low rumble and ping of the diesel engine, and, and the sounds of the, the – they shake a lot, and they vibrate a lot, and, and – the, the sounds around the, the, the calls to prayer at certain hours in Iraq and Afghanistan, the sounds really brought me back more than the visuals did. 
uh, but I'm sure it's different for everyone. Uh, also, there's a, a platform which the chair is on, so there, we can recreate rumble and vibration to make it more realistic. We can uh, tailor the virtual reality to their experience, so it could be in a Humvee, in a uh, uh, Abrams in a tank, uh, pretty much any vehicle in, in, the, in the military, we can put them in the driver's seat, the passenger seat, the gun turret, uh, really to make it fit their experience. We can put them in you know, helicopters uh, for uh, sexual trauma survivors. We can do uh, hotel room or barrack scenes, but we can really tailor to the individual and it really helps them go back to that experience and go through it again and expose themselves to it. And and I, I don't want to misspeak. I, I'm not a doctor, so if I say anything, uh, you know, incorrect, please let me know. Or, uh, you know, but uh, the key is really reliving that experience and finding different ways to think about and to deal with it. You know, a lot of times people blame themselves for something that happened uh, ten years ago, an IED that one of their friends died, and, and they didn't. And only through going through that trauma over and over again and realizing there's nothing they could have done. There's nothing else they could have done, and that it happened, and that you know they're here now, and that they have to come to peace with it, and uh, just reliving it and re-exposing yourself to it, it works. I mean, we have the evidence to show that it works, and that's something that a lot of people are hesitant to do. I think it's a reason a lot of people uh, are hesitant to get training to begin with, is they don't want to relive those experiences. Those experiences are painful. And they don't, they're trying to avoid them. Uh, one, of the, one of the hallmarks of PTSD is avoidance and really only going through it again over and over and, and getting that, that trauma-focused um, therapy is, that exposure is the way, you know, to overcome it. Yeah, and, you know, even as a civilian who's never gone through mm-hmm. that, I think we can all relate that we kind of twist our memories in mm-hmm. a way that, isn't always compatible with reality. You know, mm-hmm. there are hence two sides to every story. Right. <laughs> and, and it's so interesting that when you relive it, that reality can sometimes be so different with what your mind has done mm-hmm. to that reality. Right. Um, and being more objective, mm-hmm. you know, through the virtual reality, uh, I'm sure makes people see things in a way that maybe for years and years they hadn't seen or how over time they've drifted away from that reality into something that's probably less functional. Mm-hmm. And you said this program is effective. It helps. Can you speak a little bit about the types of results you see, you know, both in the two-week intensive as well as with the longer duration mm-hmm. programs? Mm-hmm. Well, we're seeing anecdotally, well, our proven results is over 80% of our patients have medically significant improvements. And the vast majority of those maintain those improvements at three months, six months, and 12 months when we do the follow-ups. Wow, uh, that's so, phenomenal. And just anecdotally speaking, I've been there a little over a year. I've seen over 150 veterans go through the program, the tweak program. And every veteran I've seen complete the program has left better when they came in. You know, Everyone's different. Everyone's trauma is different. Everyone... Uh, everyone's treatment program is different. Uh, some, you know, leave, you know, a little better. Some leave. It's not an exaggeration to say it's night and day. You know, they leave a different person. They have their life back. I, I've, you know, it's cliche, but I hear that you gave me my life back a lot. And I, I've, I've heard several veterans who come to the program said that they wouldn't be here much longer on this earth if they hadn't gone and, and received the training. 
so it is transformative. It really does get results. A lot of veterans have the uh, misconception that you can't cure PTSD. Um, and, you know, maybe there's some truth to that. There's, you know, you, you, you can't make the experience not happen. It, it's going to be there, but you can get your life back. You can live a full life. You can't that get better. must be incredibly gratifying to see those kinds of outcomes. And in a two-week program, mm-hmm. it can make that much of a difference. Mm-hmm. It does. I mean, uh, that's that's the thing. A lot of people think, what can you do in two weeks? But as I said before, in those two weeks, we cram more sessions than you would have in an entire year. Uh, almost, like I said, almost two years worth of treatment in a two-week program. Uh, and it's a lot of work. Uh, a lot of the veterans, that first week is, is tough. Uh, a lot of veterans on that second or third day talk about quitting, but we have 92% completion rate, so obviously most of them don't. And by the end of that first week, everybody is, they, that by then they're seeing the results and they have the buy-in. And it kind of helps because it's a tweak program, but we start a new group every Monday. So there's an overlap. So every Monday we have one group who's day one and then another group who's starting their second week. And what that gives us is sort of a mentor, someone who's been there, who's been through that, and they can say, stick with it, it's worth it. They can also help them, uh, show them around the area, help them find their appointments. We try to make it as easy as possible because all of our doctors are in the same building. We have a few other services such as uh, uh, massage and uh, acupuncture and physical training, which are in some facilities around us. So having those, uh, those older, one week older, veterans in there, there's mentors in there, really helps with that, that too, helps uh, smooth that transition and helps the people who are just getting in because it's a lot to ask for people to come in, you know, come from their homes and just put their trust in us for two weeks. Yeah, and share thoughts and mm-hmm. emotions that they haven't shared with anyone mm-hmm. um, probably for a very long time. So oh, yeah. it does take a lot of trust. It takes a lot of readiness. You know, it seems like it takes a select subgroup of people who are ready mm-hmm. to go through this right. and are motivated right. to not go through this trauma anymore. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And that's, you know, it is that's true uh, because it requires a lot of work on the part of the patient. It's not, there's there's not a pill we can give them. They, they have to go through the work themselves. They have to be willing uh, to trust us and do the work. So, uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and you said, you know, people start seeing a big difference at, you know, even two weeks, but even up to 12 months out, you Mm -hmm. see that that change in their life has persisted. Is there a point at which, I mean, we're all human, that people take that step back and they need to re-engage in the program? Mm -hmm. And what we want to offer is is a program where they can come and get the skills and training they need to move forward. Uh, we don't want to necessarily be something that uh, veterans would come back and rely on. We Our case managers work with the veteran uh, to develop a care plan local to their home uh, with the VA or pro- with private providers. So every veteran who leaves the program will have a care plan and the, we'll, our, our case managers will communicate with their care team so they can receive ongoing training, ongoing support. Uh, there have been instances where we have brought certain patients back uh, but those are uh, really case dependent. There was one recently who we brought back. She was, she had a, uh, a significant breakthrough towards the end of the second week, and they really wanted to work on that. So they brought her back a couple weeks when she could. Uh, uh, she had to, she had to go home. Then she came back. Uh, I think it was about a month or so later. And every now and then we have somebody 
that will extend. So they'll do two weeks and then we'll decide to do a third week. But that's really up to the doctors, up to the uh, individual care plan. For the vast majority, uh, we see great results in two weeks and we don't see the need to extend. But we do have that flexibility, which is awesome. And what's really encouraging is, you know, for all people who have had some traumatic life event, that there's so much that can be altered with the PTSD treatments mm-hmm. that their life can be turned around. Because I think a lot of people start to feel hopeless and alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and the results that you're able to accomplish with such a well-designed and structured program is just really proof that a lot can change in a short amount of mm-hmm. time. Yeah, there's one story, one guy that I talk about a lot. Uh, he was a Navy veteran. He had a job at a, in finance, a pretty good job. Uh, he's one of those people that you would look at and not think there's anything wrong with him. Uh, but he came through our program. Uh, and one of the things about our program, it's a dry program. So for the two weeks, we ask the veterans don't drink or use any illicit narcotics. Um, so f- we're going out Saturday. Oh, also, I tell you, Monday through Friday is treatment. And then on Saturday, we do a weekend outing. It's We go someplace like a Braves game or to a festival or to the aquarium. It's sort of a, a break. And also, it's very intentionally some places going to be loud and crowded. So we can sort of practice some of the strategies they've worked on the prior week. So uh, I'm taking this veteran out. Uh, to, this was the Decatur Book Festival. I'm taking him out. And he's telling me about all these bars he went to the night before in, in uh, Midtown and Buckhead. And I'm like, dude, don't, I don't want to narc on you. Why are you telling me this? But then he tells me that he hasn't left his home after dark in years. He go, gets up, gets up at 4 a.m. because he can't sleep past that. He goes into work, goes to work, comes home, locks his door, turns off the lights, and that's it. He doesn't leave his house, hasn't socialized. He's a, a divorcee, so he hasn't his, – his, you know, the only person in his life was his daughter, which doesn't who doesn't live with him, and he con- you know talks on the phone. But he, because of that after just a week, he felt confident to go out, went out by himself, and actually talked to people. And that's what he was excited about that he can go out by himself and talk to people. And he was ecstatic about that. And you know, of course, I couldn't be mad at that. Um, and that's just after a week. Wow, you know uh, what. You know, I'm really just so thankful and appreciative of all the work you do that this program exists. I'm so glad we're able to talk about it so more people learn about the program. Before we close, what advice would you give to any veteran that may be listening? My advice would be don't wait. If you're experiencing any of the symptoms of PTSD, if you're experiencing any anxiety, any depression, anything that's holding you back, anything that any feeling that your life could be better, get the training that you need now. Don't wait until it comes to a point where it is drives you to do something that really will affect your life. Uh, There's no shame in getting the training you need to live a better life. You can live a better life. And the world's a better place with you in it. And really, through Emory Healthcare Veterans Program, through other programs that offer similar treatment, you know, obviously I want you to come to Emory, but I want you to go (laughs) go wherever you need to go uh, and and get the training you need to live the best life you can. And that 1-800 number (laughs) (laughs) sounds like an infomercial. (laughs) Right. So for more information about the Emory Healthcare Veterans Program, uh, you can call us at one. 888-514-5345.
That's great. And we'll post that on the podcast website. So for people who didn't catch that, um, you should be able to view it on the website. Once again, Sean, thank you so much. This has been just such an enlightening conversation. Um, and, and I think your advice to the veterans is just really um, very impactful. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. The Whole Health Cure is brought to you by the Lifestyle Medicine and Wellness Center at Emory. For more information about wellness assessments, classes, and other resources, please visit our website. This material is copyrighted by Emory University.